Welcome to the Don't Pick the Scab podcast with the premise of connecting men over 40 with the tools and community to thrive in their divorce recovery, either before, during, or after a divorce. Check it out. Welcome, my bride, out there to Don't Pick the Scab podcast, a podcast that empowers divorced or divorcing men over 40 to reach their full potential in their healing and their recovery. Welcome to the show, Lair Torrent a marriage and family therapist, author of the book, The Practice of Love. He's a psychotherapist, executive consultant, and speaker. His superpower is, and he does have a superpower, his superpower is uniting Eastern-based mindfulness practices and Western clinical models. He's created a unique approach to healing. Welcome, Lair. My first question, and me and my daughter go around around this, what is mindfulness? It's paying attention on purpose. Yeah, that's all it is. It's paying attention to your thoughts and feelings with purpose. Uh, the brain, our, our big brains are taking in about 400 billion bits of information per second through the various ports in our bodies. And so automation is our friend and that takes us out of the moment. We don't want to stop and notice what we're thinking, what we're feeling because we're busy automating and, and sorting all the information that's coming in. And so mindfulness is a 2,500-year-old practice. Uh, it's Eastern-based uh, practice of taking a pause. They call it the sacred pause and beginning to notice. And what does that do for us? Well, a myriad of things. It's truly a superpower. The, the toughest thing about it is remembering to do it because the brain doesn't want to remember to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can take that pause and you can begin to notice. You can begin to choose not you're not, not, not the feelings that you have, but you can choose your reactions. You can choose your words. Um, you can um, decide to stop a habit that has been plaguing you and onboard a new one. That's more, perhaps better or more healthy. Mm -hmm. um, that's mindfulness. As far as I see, it's really just paying attention on purpose to your thoughts and feelings. What are uh, some of the common resistance and or obstacles that people encounter internally when undergoing healing from a devastating event like divorce that you come across? Well, um, you know, I think it goes, it, and I'm not the first to say this, it goes in stages. And I know that we have the stages of healing or the stages mm -hmm. of that, which, you know, we find out they are not linear. Um, but the resistance typically for me is like, people don't, people have a hard time asking for help. Um, we have this idea and I don't know if this is a particularly American idea that we should just know how to do this. And we don't, um, it's primarily, I think why the divorce rate is as high as it is, right? We, we get married, not knowing how to have relationships. We get sent out of high school and college, not knowing how to buy a car, not knowing how to buy a house. We don't know how to get insurance, but man, we pretty sharp in that algebra department. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the last time I had to use algebra or trigonometry, but man, I could have really used a class on how to deal with my relationships or my feelings, how to get, how to file my taxes, right? Relationships tend to fall into that bracket. And so when, when our lives are coming apart, um, it's hard for us to ask for help. It feels like a failure, I think. And a lot of people talk about divorce with that sort of old ethos of it's a failure. Okay. Perhaps I try to talk people out of that, but really facing it and confronting it head on. That's what I help people do. And that's a really hard one, man, because I think instinctively we know, we know that that's a rough road to hoe. Mm -hmm. And 
do it properly, we're going to feel some stuff. And we've pathologized our feelings in this culture. We don't want to feel what it feels like to be human. Um, and what we know is, what I know is, if you want to really get through it, if you really want to deal with your grief and your suffering, the only path through it is through it. Um, but people don't want to do that. And so that's it. Asking for help, making that call, coming to an office like mine. Why do people, especially men over 40, us guys, why do we have such a hard time asking for help? Why do we have a hard time reaching out for therapy? Well, you remember, I mean, I'm going to imagine you remember, well, you're old, you're, you're old enough like me right now to remember before we had Google Maps. And so you're driving along or you remember your dad driving along and it's like, yeah. we're lost. And the wife or the kids say, well, dad, let's stop, let's stop for, let's stop for directions. <laughs> I'm not stopping. I don't need directions. I don't need help from anybody. I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm a grown ass man. Yeah, I don't need that. I'll think we'll figure it out. Right. And I remember that. Like, yeah. right. So there's this innate weakness, right? There's this vulnerability in saying, I don't know. We should know. And I think that's it, right? Asking for help. We're supposed to be strong. And I think asking for help denotes a certain level of weakness. And so typically when men come through my door, they're either being dragged by their spouses. And I know this is, this is stereotypical and cliche, but, you know, sometimes stereotypes and cliches play. They're there because of some reasons. Yeah. And, or when men, things have really fallen apart. Now, I will say this, times are changing and men are starting to ask for help more, right? They're starting yes. to kind of reach yes. out more. And yeah. the, that I, the old idea that therapy is like just for the weirdos and the crazies, that's all out the window, I think, by and large, especially in the bigger cities. Like, you know, I was, I, my practice started in, in New York and everybody has a therapist, like they have a pair of shoes. Um, so you know, it's, it's becoming more of the norm. And I think that we're getting better at asking for help. So how did you unite the Eastern and Western practices? What was, yeah. what was your four way there? Yeah. So, so, so I popped into my internship, right? My clinical internship. And they ask you a question, the same question. They say, who do you want to work with? And I was like, I want to work with couples. And they were like, great. We hate working with couples. So we're going to give them all to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> So there I am, like my practice is loaded as a, as a clinical intern. You want more, you want to fast track those hours. Yep. So I'm working with my couples, right? And I'm doing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? I'm doing the CBT. I'm doing the, you know, uh, you name it. I'm doing the family systems. I'm doing all the stuff and it's working like a charm. People are eating it up and they're loving it, right? They're, they're literally high-fiving me, glad hand, hugging me as they're going out the door. But before they got to the elevator banks in my building, that was all going off the rails. So, <laughs> like, they're coming back frustrated. And I was terrible. I was a terrible therapist. Right. And I was like, but I'm using the stuff. And so I went to my teachers. I went to my colleagues. I went to my friends, all of whom said the same thing. They said, they said, welcome to couples therapy. And I was like, this can't be the answer. Right. That we're sort of, we're, what are we charlatans? We're selling the snake oil. And they're like, well, you know, some of it works out and a lot of it doesn't. That's kind of how it works. Try your hardest. Do the things. I've been doing the things. So I went to this, this teacher that I had, this, this woman named Evan Ember Black. Now, Dr. Black had, uh, I mean, she was she's world-class, world-renowned marriage and family therapist. And I brought her mm -hmm. the same problem. She said to me, she said, welcome to couples therapy. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't get that. You've been on Oprah. She said, I've been on Oprah twice. I said, exactly. That can't be your answer. And she said to me, well, if you don't like it, then go figure out something for yourself. And I was like, you can do that. And she said, yeah. And I don't think she thought I would do it. 
so I went back to the drawing board and I was like, okay, what do we have? We have a lot of these modalities in psychotherapy that are cordoned off because of money, right? My theory, my way, the way I do it's the way to do it, right? Not the way they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how are you not taking this from that and this from this and this from that? And what I, what I started building was this very eclectic way of working with couples. I said, I'm going to take this from narrative therapy. I'm going to take this from parts work, right? I'm going to take this from emotionally focused therapy. And I'm going to take these pieces. And I was like, okay, so I have sort of a model, but I was like, how do you change a habit? Well, you have to notice that you're doing the thing you don't want to do first. You can't do that without the sacred pause. You can't do that without mindfulness. And so for me, Western clinical modalities have a hole in their game. And that is there's no stopping, pushing, pause and noticing in the moment, not in the therapy room. In the therapy room, it's like practice. It's like like the locker room. We can talk about the X's and O's. We have to do it out there when it's the Mm -hmm. hardest. Mindfulness allows us that on-ramp. Mindfulness allows us to push pause. And so it's the first practice of my book. If you want to change how you're moving in your world, if you want to change any relationship, including the one with yourself, you need to learn to stop, push pause and go, what am I about to do? What am I about to say? And do I want to do or say this thing? So that's how that's how Eastern philosophy and mindfulness came into my practice. So you just gave me the title of the podcast, The Frankenstein Therapist. <laughs> I honestly thought about that for the book. I was like, you know, how do you, yeah, like Frankenstein's monster therapy. Oh, hell yeah. Parts, parts. It's parts. way better than the practice of love. <laughs> so, something about the name Frankenstein and love, you know, really don't go together. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. That was awesome. Um, I, I got, I, I digress, but let me jump back on there. How do you practice love? What's the mode there? How do you practice love? First of all, it's recognizing that it's a practice recognizing that it's something that that we want to do well and that perhaps we're not born like we we are born let me be specific we are born knowing how to love as humans i think most of us unless we have a major personality disorder right it's the conveyance of love that becomes problematic how do i as i said to one person who was in my uh, sitting in my office i was like how do you do you love your wife and he was like well yeah he looked at me like i was daft i was like well how would she know that and he goes, well, because of all the loving thoughts and feelings I have in here. What are you talking about? I said, well, that's really good for you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's what you do. And I'm not the first to say that, that love's a verb. Yep. For me, the practice of love boils down to, one, mindfulness, because we have to learn to stop and push pause. Two, we have to recognize what part of us is showing up. We are not the single organisms we see staring back at us in the mirror, right? We have these many vestiges of ourselves. So if you think about your smartphone as an example, You're not going to choose your Instagram app if you want to send an email. So if you want to have a loving, connective conversation with somebody, you better not choose your inner critic, your protective aspects of self. These are fully formed aspects of our personality, and we see the world through them. And so there we are wondering why we can't communicate. And this is the the stuff that like therapists like me have been selling for years, this communication, like, you know, the uh, uh, nonviolent communication modalities. They're great and wonderful, Mm -hmm. but if you're trying to practice nonviolent communication from a protective part of yourself, what I think I heard you say turns into what the frig did you just say to me really, really quickly, right? So parts are important. Also narrative. That's the third practice. 
we have to know what story we're telling. Is that my sweetheart that left the milk out again for the second time this week, who's just so tired and works so hard? Or is it the no account son of a bitch who only thinks about themselves? Right? Two very different stories. Yeah. The third part of the practice is choosing. It's really about your, the way you love and, and, um, it's, 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 it's high. It's not love languages. It's deeper than that, but it's really like recognizing how your partner wants to be loved and why they need to be loved. Like, what are they completing in the form of like, were they unsafe as a child? Were they loved? Were they enough? Did they matter? Because they're trying to recreate that in your relationship and you need to know what they're doing. The fifth practice, and I'll stop talking after this is it's right out of stoicism. It's personal responsibility. You got to own your stuff. You got to be willing to carry some weight. And the first part of that weight is, are you mindful of your parts of the story you're telling and how your partner needs to be loved and cared about? Right. Responsibility. What's that? Responsibility. Personal responsibility. Yeah. 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 Wow. This is interesting. <laughs> you got me, man. You, you're hooking me. So it's good stuff. Uh, I use it every day. I use it with my wife. I use it with my kids. I use it in my life. Oh, yeah. This is part of life. What levels of love are there? You know, there's different types of love. How can you explain those? I always say that the, the Eskimos have a hundred words for snow. We have one for love. And um, the type of love, I think that, you know, when I, when I met my wife, I walked and I was bartending at the time because I told you I was an actor in New York. That mm-hmm. meant I a lot too. I walked into my bartending job. I walked downstairs. I opened the door to the manager's office to get my bank for the night and towels and all that. And there was this young lady being interviewed for a job. And she looked up at me. I looked at her and I said, there you are. Hit me like a ton of it. Now, she was not having the same experience. I will offer offer you that. It doesn't matter. Yeah, right. (laughs) It doesn't matter. She's like, who is this guy? He's scaring me. Um, And he's, yeah. So, uh, but that kind of love was that, that love that, you know, hits you like a sledgehammer it's it's dopamine right it's it's a chemical love it's it's limerence and we all experience that type of limerence in in the, hopefully in the beginning and this is when we're all on our best behavior you've essentially met their agent right you're going to meet the real them in a little mm-hmm. while yep. you know um so there's that kind of love now the love i have with my wife now of 23 years um is one that goes to depth, right? It, the dopamine's worn off. And the thing that we can rely upon is oxytocin. Mm-hmm. That is the hug hormone. And that comes from showing up. That comes from personal responsibility. That comes from, I'm going to think about you when, even when you're not here, right? There's the love that go. It's, it's going from a me-centered way of thinking in your life to a we, or often just you. Um, you know, so f- there are, you know, there are uh, a myriad of different ways to love and different types of love, but those are the two that show up for me most in relationships anyway. Mm-hmm. How about the most important love, uh, self-love, you know, because you can't love anybody else and lo- love yourself. Can you speak to that? So, uh, you know, I would, I would say that, that that's the idea that you can't love anyone unless you love yourself. I might, I might push back on that. And I, I, I see people who, are very good at loving other people, but they're terrible at loving themselves. And that's problematic, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hate to say that all roads lead back to mom and dad, but they very often do. And that's one of the reasons why I went to get a degree in family systems work because you, as a therapist, you need to know how the family worked. 
um, if we are not taught to love ourselves, and I go back to these four core questions that I ask everybody, was I loved? Were you safe? Were you enough? And did you matter? Right. And if any one of those are not answered in the affirmative, then that's your core wound. And you may get a few of them. That's complex trauma. Right. So you have a lot of people out there going, I, I, I didn't matter. There's a lack of self-love. I wasn't enough. Right. Mm-hmm. All of those denote a, some form of a lack of an inability to love ourselves. <clears throat> and so we're out there looking for someone else to fulfill that. And so bringing that back home, beginning to understand our intrinsic goodness, right? Looking at ourselves in the mirror and being able to say, wow, I really like what I see. Look at how, how, how are you this person? That is so hard for people. They have, they have such a hard time when I, when I try to bring that idea home that self-love is really important. Self-compassion is really important and practicing that man, watch them start with, they get really uncomfortable really quick. How does self-confidence play in that then? Well, look, it depends on this. This is where we get into parts <clears throat> because you can have someone who's very, very self-confident in, in their work as an example, because mm-hmm. again and again, they've gone to work and had their efforts there rewarded. Um, but they have a, they, you know, they go home and they get on the apps and they're looking for love and, and they go on that date and they are a fraud. They are buckled because I'm not enough. I did not matter. And so they go on these dates and these parts of themselves, like who they apologize for being in the room. Meanwhile, they're a go-getter and a killer at work, right? Mm-hmm. Aspects of us show up depending. And so for me, self-confidence is about becoming mindful and aware of the different aspects of self that are in there and noticing like the triggering. So if someone says, you know, it's like, oh, I have a hard time speaking on stage in front of people. There's a part of you that has a hard time speaking on stage in front mm-hmm. of people. Maybe, maybe none of you likes it, but there is a part of you that can actually do it. But if you have some aspect in you in there that's telling you that you're, you know, garbage, you're not enough, you don't matter, nothing that you're going to say is going to be of any interest, then you're going to get out there and you're going to sweat. You're going to be sheepish. And so if, if there's any area of our lives where we're not particularly confident, look no further than your parts. Some aspect in you is showing up. So I had this, you'll love this story. Um, I do a lot of work with actors. I was a sort of a therapist at Broadway for a long time. And so I get a lot of referrals in that area. And so I didn't know this guy's name, but the camera opened up and I immediately recognized him in, from the show that I had watched in the early 2000s. And I was like, oh my God, I love your work. I just watched you last night. And the, in the subject line, he wanted, he wanted, um, he wanted professional help with his career. And I was like, I'm, I know that you have at least one Tony award. I know you're on my favorite show. Well, how can I possibly help you in your professional life? He's like, well, I had this meeting, the meeting with a very, very big director and a very, very big producer in Hollywood. They called my agent. It was this one's going to take me to the next level. Um, I got there and they asked me about what I was doing. I didn't name that I had three treatments for sitcoms in, in written. I didn't name that. I had two movies that I was thinking about. Didn't name all the things I just lost. I didn't, I, I couldn't think of what I was, what I was doing or what I, what I wanted to do. I just all lost. I choked and I don't want to do that again. And so that's why I'm here. I said, okay, well tell me about the first auditions you had in New York. And he was, they were terrible. And I said, well, I know that you're a classically trained actor. How are they terrible? He's, I don't know. He's like, I showed up 
kind of kicking the dirt, you know, slump shoulder kid from the Midwest apologizing for being in the room. I said, well, what happened? He goes, because obviously something changed. He said, well, I just decided one day I'm never going to be Meryl Streep. I'm never going to be Robert De Niro. I had to be myself. And I just I go, showed up in your professional actor. He goes, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, so who showed up at the meeting with the producer and the director? He goes, slump shouldered kid kicking the dirt, apologizing for being in the room. I said, exactly. Right. You were triggered by the gravity of the moment. You mm-hmm. forgot who you needed to be and you showed up in this kid, kid part of you again. So if we're going to talk about needing self-confidence, you've got to ask yourself who shows up. And we need, that's the most important question we can ask every single day of our lives in any situation with your kids, with your wife at work, doesn't matter. The most important question is who in me shows up? Who do I want to be? Man, I got too many topics now. To, to, We're all over the board. I love it, man. Damn. I'm coming so, back. So if you could sit in the room and you had three divorced guys going through trauma and they represented every divorced guy in the world and you could open up their heads, take out their brain and you could insert one piece of healing, what would it be? Out of everything you do, what would you insert in their brains? They're sort of representative of every divorced guy in the world. What would I, the thing that I would, I would, the the practice that I would give to them is the practice of the narrative. Because very often when we get, when we boil it down, they have most of them. There's, so you gave me three, so I might give you two or three practices depending on the situation, but most, most of them, especially if let's say their spouse cheated on them as an example, they will come away with, I am not enough, or I don't matter. Some version of that. I mean, I think men, Chris Rock said it best. He said, he said, he said, he said, uh, uh, unconditional love is for children, women, and dogs. We are. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and you 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 didn't refute that either, did you? Didn't push back. No, every man that I say that to, they're like, "Okay, that's spot on, right?" That's whether that's actually true or not. um, Maybe someone would argue. That's how we feel. We are loved for what we can do, what we can provide. Um, You know, going all the way back to Cro Magna Man. You know, it's like I'm going to sharpen more sticks, kill more deer, and find you a bigger cave, sweetie. you know, that's kind of how we feel, uh, I think, in general. And so often men walk away from something like a divorce with a problematic narrative, a story about themselves that's less than um, healthy, often toxic. Those thoughts become feelings, right? So let's talk about what goes on in the body. When I have a thought, my body is is like a short order cook, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to do that? Let's do that. Okay, fine. You're a piece of crap. Here you go. You're a piece of crap. Here, you're a failure. Okay, here you go. Here you're a failure. Right. And so those narratives become really important. And so we have to mindfully practice one, take a peek at those and notice because they're so quiet. And they're, then let's say that narrative is supported by other evidence in our lives. And then they build up. That's it. Pretty wow. soon I have, I have a belief system about who I am and who I'm not, what I get and what I don't get. And maybe I'm trying to overcompensate. You see that a lot. Yeah. Look at my ridiculous car. I'm trying to overcompensate for this horrible feeling that you have about yourself. And really what you need to do is go in there and author that narrative. All I want to know, Larry, do you do you always get the big piece of chicken? Um, <laughs> in my house, they do that. Like I'm listen, I was raised in the 80s, man. So <laughs> we're not even near it. 
Man, your face was My youngest will look at it, but he knows that who that chicken's for. <laughs> Daddy gets the big piece of chicken. Don't you touch yeah. it, son. <laughs> I will often, I will give the big piece of chicken away. Uh-huh. Yeah, no problem. I have no but, problem giving it away. But you're in control of the big piece of chicken, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god Lair. this has been interesting <laughs> well, no. we want to thank Lair for the word interesting it can go either way <laughs> we want to thank Lair for taking his time out today and, and talk to us about the big piece of chicken and the narrative and mindfulness Mm-hmm. Which the three things I remember from this podcast, you know, we really appreciate your time. Let us know where to find you on the internet. Uh, LairTorrent.com for sure, but also on Instagram, uh, LairTorrent Holistic Therapist. So you'll get a lot of little videos, my mug talking at you like I know something. There you go. And we will have that uh, those links at the bottom of the show notes. But thanks again, Lair. It's been one of my most interesting podcasts. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I compliment. Thank you. All right. Take care. Ow.